When you visit Arizona, time is measured in moments, not minutes. Like the moment your work stress disappears as you kayak through the canyons. Or the moment you discover the life-changing effects of prickly pear chocolate. But nothing beats the moment you see the Grand Canyon for the very first time. Visit a new state of mind. Learn more at hereyouareaz.com. The opinions expressed in the following episode do not necessarily reflect those of the Minds of Madness podcast. Listener discretion is advised. On a fall day back in 1994, authorities from a tiny ski village in Canada's Laurentia Mountains responded to reports of a house fire. Inside, two bodies were discovered, initially ruled as suicides, until police discovered three more bodies. They'd been stabbed to death. The very next day, two small towns in Switzerland were rocked by eerily similar tragedies. As investigators unraveled the link between these shocking discoveries, they found a trail leading back to an apocalyptic cult with influential members across the globe. Were the deceased members of the cult true believers, or were they murdered on the orders of their unhinged leaders, men desperate to escape punishment for another despicable crime? The truth defies easy explanation, and the consequences of that fateful week would echo long after the orchestrators themselves were dead. Join me now as we look into the history of the Solar Temple, a secret of international religious order whose dark end bears an eerie similarity to the infamous Jonestown Massacre. To understand the twisted path that led to the cult's finale, we'll have to trace its origins back to its humble beginnings as a New Age spiritual movement and follow the thread through an intricate tale of faith, deception, and violence. Before we get into this wild case, I'd like to introduce you to Sarah Booth, a Canadian-born actress who plays one of our most favorite characters in the hit eight-part series, Three Pines. We absolutely fell in love with Sarah's character on the show. She plays an officer adding just the right amount of comic relief in a series based on murder mysteries that take place in a small rural town in Quebec, which also just happens to be where Sarah grew up and started her career. And after a brief exchange on Twitter, we thought she'd be perfect to co-host this episode with. So I actually started acting at a pretty young age. I loved being on stage and just making people laugh and all those things, but I never knew that I could do it as a career. And when I discovered that in high school, in my very first stage play, I was hooked. I jumped into a theater program in Montreal, which is very close to where this case takes place. And I started my career there. And I've never looked back. And hopefully I never do in the future. <laughs> hopefully I made the right choice. 
So I actually never heard about this solar temple story when I read the script and read up about this incredible, bonkers story, I was blown away that I hadn't heard about it. But I did mention it to my mom one day last week when she was visiting me in Windsor. And she said, oh yeah, I kind of remember hearing about that because my aunt had a cottage in Morn Heights and that's where it takes place. So there had been, you know, some rumors and some, I guess, tidbits of information, but I'd never heard that there was a giant cult, you know, about an hour away from my house. And with that, let's get back to the story. To begin this story, we'll be taking you to Switzerland, where this twisted tale really begins to unravel and where a 29-year-old named Thierry Huguenot comes onto the scene. If you'd met him back in 1979, you might consider Thierry somewhat of an average Joe. He was lean, bookish-looking, married with two kids, and had a stable job. But hidden beneath Thierry's unassuming exterior, there was a turbulent inner struggle, the result of a fragmented and chaotic upbringing that left him searching for answers. Haunted by the feeling that there had to be more to life, Thierry turned to spiritual philosophy to fill that void, leading him to meet a person highly regarded within those esoteric circles, a man named Joseph de Mambro. At first glance, Joe didn't look the part. In most photos, he appeared unremarkable. That's until he threw on his shiny cape. Once the cape was on, Joe could easily be mistaken for a magician, and perhaps to a certain degree, he was. But to those around him, the cape signified something more. It signified authority. A man who knew things. A man who held the answers to life's most mystifying questions. And that's precisely what first appealed to Terry about Joe. He seemed to have all the answers, including why Terry was experiencing problems in his life. According to Joe, Terry's hardships were the result of sins he'd committed in his past lives. But Joe didn't just leave Terry hanging there. He had a solution. Conveniently, Joe just happened to be holding a few seminars on how to fix that very problem. While attending Joe's spiritual seminars, Terry met a welcoming community of like-minded seekers, which would eventually grow to encompass hundreds of members throughout Europe and Canada a group Joe named the Order of the Solar Temple. The Order believed in spiritual masters who had left their physical bodies behind to offer wisdom and advice from their home in the stars. And for a while, the teachings of the Solar Temple seemed to give Thierry the answers he'd been looking for, especially when it came to who he'd been in his past lives. According to Joe, Thierry hadn't been just some average, ordinary person. He'd been a king from the biblical book of Genesis. Not exactly easy to return to a life of mediocrity when you're being told you're part of a grand design stretching back millennia. But then things started to get weird, or at least weirder than they already were. Over the next 15 years, Thierry would find himself fully entrenched in an underground world of strange sexual practices, patterns of abuse, and financial manipulation that left him feeling uneasy. He'd begun to see the darker side of the Order of the Solar Temple, and he knew he needed to break free. 
like a tangled ball of yarn. When it comes to Joe DeMambro's early life, it's difficult to distinguish fact from fiction. What seems reasonably clear, from as far back as anyone can trace, is that Joe was always drawn to mysticism, an obsession that in the end, led him away from pursuing any sort of conventional profession. Instead, Joe spent his time diving headfirst into arcane subjects like Christian mysticism, Freemasonry and alchemy, practically devouring any book he could get his hands on, leading him through the world of fringe religious elements, rubbing shoulders with mysterious cults, sects, and very spiritual orders. But Joe's pursuit of knowledge wouldn't lead him down a path of enlightenment. Instead, it would send him towards a much more ominous pursuit, filled with greed, power, and an insatiable desire to dominate others. It was way back in 72 when Joe first found himself in a bit of a pickle with the law for posing as a shrink and forging checks. He'd later go on to create a spiritual commune of his own, one that would mysteriously burn down in 79 under suspicious circumstances, leaving many to wonder if it was more than just a mere accident. Whether it was arson or a stroke of luck, the insurance money likely came in handy when it came time for Joe to finance his next project the Golden Way Foundation, a prototype in many ways for a New Age belief system that would eventually lead to utter disaster. More importantly, the foundation served as a platform for Joe to establish himself as a legitimate and respected leader with the New Age spiritual movement. Now fast forward to 1984, when Joe finally had all the credentials, it seemed, to embark on his final project, the International Chivalric Order of the Solar Temple. And although Joe had managed to earn a certain level of stature within his spiritual circles by this point, he knew his limitations, particularly in terms of his looks and charisma. He needed someone to help him pull off a successful recruitment drive. What he needed was a sidekick, someone who possessed everything he lacked, someone who could be the face of the organization while Joe stayed in the shadows and pulled the strings. For Joe, that sidekick was Luke Charest, a homeopathic doctor. 23 years younger than Joe, Luke Charest had a radio-ready voice and much better looks. It was easy to see why he was already a rising star in the French New Age movement. Known as a spiritual healer and for his lectures on naturopathy, he'd speak at bookstores and conferences, even at Joe's Golden Way Foundation. Luke was a natural fit for the Solar Temple, and by joining forces with Joe, he was successful at bringing in many new followers. And when it came to locking in the interest of new recruits, Luke's methods were ingenious, treating his lectures and conferences like a veritable safari, stalking the most susceptible members of the audience. First, he'd zero in on audience members who appeared most receptive, then would gradually introduce the concept of things like supernatural vibrations and vital energies, eventually leading him to talk about psycho-spiritual auras, with his talks on environmentalism becoming violent visions of the Earth's destruction. And it worked. They were mesmerized by every word, and the more they'd hear, the less they'd understand, leading them to want to know more. Listen long enough, and Luke would promise an utter remaking of reality, 
and a higher state of consciousness. Although a lot of this might seem entirely strange today, back in the 70s and 80s, the New Age movement was in vogue, and organizations like the Solar Temple Order struck most outsiders as relatively harmless, falling largely in the same category as things like astrology, UFOs, or searching for Bigfoot. But as the years went on, some troubling skeletons started to emerge from the Order's closet that did raise some eyebrows. It turned out that one of the Order's former leaders had been a Nazi collaborator during World War II and had continued working with various European neo-Nazi groups long after the war ended. Well, needless to say, that didn't sit well with a lot of people. So Luke decided it was time to get as far away from the bad press as possible, leaving his partner Joe behind to run things in Europe. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18. Plus. Luke had his sights set on Quebec because he claimed that the region's magnetic field would protect the order from cataclysmic earthquakes. And with the help of large donations from faithful members, they were able to finance the project and others like it. Before long, the Solar Temple had a brand new outpost near Montreal, Quebec, and they were officially an international order. In Europe, Joe's favorite method of bringing in new followers was to convince them they were reincarnations of prominent historical figures, like he'd done with Terry, often choosing figures who'd been religious trailblazers, persecuted in their own time. Then as members rose through the ranks, he'd upgrade their past lives as a reward, saving the loftiest past lives for himself, from the biblical Moses to Osiris, the Egyptian god of the dead. Now, to fully picture what went on in those meetings is close to impossible, but a peek behind the veil, so to speak, is possible through some grainy footage captured on an old VHS tape. The footage shows Solar Temple members walking in white robes, emblazoned with red crosses, through a mirror-lined basement of one of the compounds. And judging by their ornate ritual garb, it's evident that Joe modeled much of the cult's aesthetics on the mythology of the Knights Templar, a legendary religious order that had vanished 700 years earlier. However, if the Templars had been the blueprint, Joe's deranged imagination was about to push the order into uncharted territory. It was within the inner sanctum where it seemed the most peculiar things unfolded, a closed-off room where only a very select few were permitted, a room decked out to the max with $60,000 worth of holographic projectors. 
Members had no clue the spirits they were about to commune with were being artificially produced by Joe and his very own personal Wizard of Oz. A man named Tony Dutois, a lighting engineer who orchestrated all the effects. Other effects weren't as quite high budget, like the Excalibur stage prop covered in dayglow paint. But if rumors were true, Joe managed to get around these cheesy stage props by dosing followers coffee with hallucinogens before the rituals would begin. Suddenly, what may have seemed impossible was suddenly plausible. Conveniently, only Joe had access to the spirits he referred to as cosmic masters and used their authority to conduct experiments on his most faithful followers. One practice that seemed particularly beneficial to Joe was one he called cosmic coupling, where established couples were pulled apart and reassigned to new partners, often with a significant age difference. Joe himself was in a relationship with a woman 37 years younger than him. Years later, the couple had a daughter they named Emmanuel. Though Joe would claim she was conceived by immaculate conception, impregnated by, oh, the laser sword of an eight-foot apparition named Manatanus. The whole charade was played out by a relative of DeMambro's, dressed in a costume while the ritual was performed on his wife for an audience using theater lights as his wife held a flashlight in her throat. And if that doesn't sound messed up enough, Joe then forced his daughter to wear a helmet and gloves while ensuring she kept her distance from other children. Why? Well, according to Joe, his mother's spirit was inhabiting his daughter's body, and she happened to be the next messiah. For these reasons, Joe claimed it was imperative to keep Emmanuel's aura pure and untainted. Ultimately, Joe had a grand plan to prepare his daughter Emmanuel for her sacred position as future messiah. In order to do that, he decided to deceive her by convincing her that she possessed supernatural abilities, the power to move doors and windows with her mind. Little did she know, her father had rigged them with remote controls. Day in and day out, Emmanuel practiced her mind powers, unaware that her dad had fed her a whole lot of garbage. But not everyone was on board with the scheme. Emmanuel's older stepbrother was less than impressed with the special treatment his younger sister was receiving and decided to investigate. That's when he raided his father's closet, only to discover, ta-da, his father's special effects and prop stash. You might think the revelation that Joe's supernatural powers were nothing but stagecraft would have been enough to ruin his credibility. But incredibly, that was not the case. Instead, many of the members remained loyal and even supported Joe's Wizard of Oz tactics, believing they were necessary to bring Joe's deeper spiritual message to the masses. In the end, the illusion persisted and Joe's reputation remained intact. After weathering through that particular storm, Joe and Luke were forced to face yet another PR nightmare. After a disgruntled member took her story of financial abuse and sexual liaisons to a cult awareness organization, InfoCult. Surprisingly, even they didn't suspect how dangerous Joe and Luke were becoming. The disgruntled ex-member's testimony would eventually lead to the breakdown of some shady real estate deals in the Caribbean Luke had been brokering. And the negative attention also played into Joe's worst fears 
that the government was spying on the Solar Temple. Meanwhile, back in Switzerland, Joe raged like a cartoon villain berating his henchmen, and the cult began hemorrhaging members left and right. In his mind, the entire situation was Luke's fault. But Luke wasn't the only reason for Joe's foul mood. His health had also been declining, with kidney failure forcing him into adult diapers, along with complications due to diabetes. He also claimed to Thierry he was dying of cancer, although the veracity of this claim remains unknown. To make matters worse, Joe's daughter Emmanuel was pushing back against the outrageous burden he'd placed on her as the next messiah. And as she hit puberty, she began to rebel, seeming more interested in pop culture than Joe's messianic plans for her future. With everything unraveling at its seams, Joe needed to reel things back in again, but not in the way anyone could have ever imagined. Joe decided it was time to hold a ritualized Last Supper in Switzerland. There, he and core members would finalize plans to join the Cosmic Masters on the distant star Sirius. They settled on a method to accomplish their deranged fantasy, ritual suicide. Soon, 15 so-called awakened high-ranking members who were aware of the plan would commit suicide by poison. 30 immortals, members who were loyal, but not necessarily prepared to take their own lives, would die by either gunshot or fire. Eight traitors who'd tried to leave or otherwise offended Joe would be shot, but presumably miss out on the interstellar reward. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hey, guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun, too. It's a thing, and now the truth is out. Out there, I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere, and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. By this point, Thierry Huguenot no longer considered himself an active member of the Solar Temple. Like many members, he'd started having doubts around the early 90s, when the bad publicity, special effects trickery, financial pressure, and Joe's domineering ways finally became too much. But Thierry had one last tie with the temple. Joe owed him money, and he wouldn't cut himself loose until he got what he was owed, a complaint shared by many of the members who'd invested in the temple's projects. On October 4th, 1994, it looked like the day had finally come that Thierry would completely wash his hands of the entire organization. Joe had agreed to repay him the money and told Thierry that an envelope of cash was waiting for him to come and pick up. Thierry drove roughly 130 kilometers from Geneva to a chalet in Grange du Salvant, an alpine village in Switzerland. Tucked away in this picturesque town, it's hard to imagine anything sinister about to unfold, but it was. When Thierry arrived, he found the chalet locked and shuttered. 
He immediately sensed something was off about the whole situation, and something deep inside of him told him to leave immediately. But before he could, Thierry came face to face with Joe, who told him he'd forgotten his key. So the two men waited until the locksmith arrived. When the door finally did swing open, Thierry reeled back, struck by an overwhelming waft of gasoline, the final straw confirming his initial instincts that something was terribly wrong. Without hesitation, Thierry turned and walked away immediately, leaving Joe, the chalet, and the promised envelope of money behind. It was a quick decision that certainly saved his life. As Thierry hightailed it to his car, another temple member followed him, urging him to come back. But Thierry's instincts told him to get into his car and get the hell out of Dodge. Leaving empty-handed, Thierry returned safely to Geneva. When he got home, he saw the breaking news on television, footage of the charred remains of the chalet he'd just visited. Inside the burned-out chalet, as well as another one nearby, police discovered the bodies of 25 people. Thierry was supposed to have been the 26th. But as horrific as the death toll at Grange-sur-Savon was, it accounted for less than half of the carnage about to be discovered. The rest would be discovered on the other side of the globe. In the town of Morn Heights, 80 kilometers north of Montreal, residents had been busy prepping for the ski season when a massive house fire broke out in the neighborhood. The fire consumed a home owned by the Solar Temple. It was a home that seemed to get little to no use at all over the years. The neighbors couldn't recall ever seeing anyone coming or going from the house. One neighbor stated she thought the house was completely empty because she'd never even seen the garbage taken out before. But when the fire erupted, the house was far from empty. When police started investigating the scene, they found two badly burned bodies. Investigators initially believed the deaths were suicide when they discovered the presence of accelerants proving the fire hadn't been an accident. They also found chairs that had been propped up under the doorknobs to prevent firefighters from coming to their rescue. And three days later, they made a horrific and startling discovery. The remains of three more bodies in the basement. But it was impossible to rule these deaths as suicide because these three victims had been stabbed to death. Under a pile of carpets and covers lay a man and woman. Autopsies would later reveal that the man had been stabbed 50 times in the back while the woman had been stabbed 14 times. Eight wounds in her back, four in her throat, and one on each breast. It was beyond gruesome. Horrifyingly, police also discovered the body of an infant, murdered in a similarly barbaric manner. The murdered man was Tony Dutois, the lighting engineer who'd helped Joe trick his followers by using holograms. The other two victims were his wife and child. It's believed his family was murdered on orders given by Joe as a way to exact revenge for insulting him. The insult? Tony had named his infant son Emmanuel. To Joe, this was an affront because his daughter Emmanuel was the Messiah. The names were close enough that Joe declared the baby boy to be the Antichrist. It would later be discovered that the two other Solar Temple followers found dead upstairs in the fire had murdered the Dutois family for Joe before making their own suicidal voyage to the stars. 
While investigators in Canada were making their shocking discoveries across the Atlantic, authorities were dealing with horrors on a whole other level. It turned out the fire Thierry narrowly escaped had only been the beginning. A hundred kilometers to the north of the village Cherie, Switzerland, another building had caught fire on a nearby farm. When the authorities were finally able to enter the farmhouse, they made a terrifying discovery. A series of detonators connected to propane tanks and garbage bags full of gasoline. In the rubble lay the body of a man with his head wrapped in a plastic bag. The magistrate's immediate thought was that the man had committed suicide by arson. But once it was safe to investigate further, he found a glaring flaw in that theory. Although the man had been shot in the head, there was no bullet hole through the bag itself. That meant the victim had been shot before someone placed a plastic bag over his head. The mystery only deepened once they discovered a hidden room. Inside the hidden room, they found a dozen or so briefcases filled with documents that made obscure references to the Order of the Solar Temple. After hours of searching, investigators found another hidden entrance in the wall of the chamber. This entrance led to a hallway rigged with even more unexploded bombs. Through the hall, they discovered one of the most bizarre and horrifying scenes imaginable, the aftermath of ritual mass suicide. On the floor were 18 deceased people dressed in silk, arranged in a sort of star formation, their feet pointing inward. Many of their heads were also wrapped in plastic bags, like the first discovered victim. Most had also been shot. Beyond the grisly scene was a black and red octagonal chapel, lined with mirrors and littered with champagne bottles, and still, even more bodies. The total body count included 10 men, 12 women, and a 10-year-old boy. It would take authorities some time to make sense of their bewildering discoveries, but when the carnage was finally over, the death toll stood at 53. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The deceased members of the Solar Temple had either been poisoned burned or shot. And as their bodies were being identified, police found several affluent and seemingly well-adjusted individuals among their number. Robert Astigui, the mayor of a Quebec town. Camille Pilet, retired sales manager of a luxury watch company, Piaget. And Guy Béranger, a nuclear engineer. Arrest warrants were quickly issued for the temple's leaders. Joe de Mambro and Luc Juret, 
wanted on suspicion of orchestrating a coup to steal riches from their wealthiest members. That's until their bodies were discovered among the 53. Joe and Luke had gone down with their own ship. Now that the two prominent members of the Solar Temple were deceased, the biggest question became, was this the end for the cult of the Solar Temple? The answer, however, seemed to be no. Because in the days following the fires and mass suicides, letters began to arrive. They'd been sent from a representative of the Solar Temple to more than 60 journalists, government officials, and various academics. They were all postmarked October 5th, after the suicides, which meant whoever sent the letters must still be alive. The letters, which the anonymous author called testaments, included bitter accusations of persecution at the hands of the government, references to the Holy Grail, ancient wisdom, and the impending transit. The Solar Temple's name for the murder-suicides they believed would send them into the arms of their cosmic masters on the star Sirius. One letter definitely encouraged others to join them, and it was titled, To all those who can still understand the voice of wisdom, we address this last message. The message read, Men, cry not over our fate, but rather cry for your own. Ours is more enviable than yours. To you who are receptive to this last message, may our love and peace accompany you during these terrible tests of the apocalypse that await you. Know that from where we will be, we will always hold our arms open to receive those who are worthy of joining us. About a year after their deaths, Thierry published a book called Le 54e, translating to the 54th, describing his experiences. He believed the number had been no accident, but rather an attempt to forge a mystical link between the spirits of the Solar Temple and the 54 members of the Knights Templar. What happens in the psyche of cult members when their charismatic leaders die? Is the hypnotic spell broken when manipulative personalities are no longer at the helm? Or are the followers inspired to double down and become even more zealous than before? In the case of the Solar Temple, the follow broke both ways. There was guilt, horror, and sadness among those who narrowly escaped the transit. But as the immediate trauma faded, other troubling emotions emerged. A sense of being labeled and stigmatized hung over many of the survivors, making it harder to move on. Others found themselves grieving the loss of purpose the temple had brought to their lives and wished there was a way to recapture those feelings. Others saw it differently. Call it stubbornness, blind faith, or grief-fueled mania. A core membership held on and discreetly continued operations. A year after the transits, an echo of the original tragedy that claimed 53 lives would claim 16 more lives in southeastern France. This time, Patrick and Edith Vernet were among the deceased. If that name sounds familiar, it's because the family lent their name to an iconic sportswear brand. As an official sponsor of the 1984 Olympics, Varnet was practically inescapable through the 80s and early 90s. Patrick's father, Jean, was a gold medalist in the 1960 Winter Olympics and, as unlikely as it sounds, 
actually helped pioneer the bent knee ski position downhill skiers use instinctively today. His athletic powers were matched by business smarts. The sportswear partnership, as well as a key role in developing ski resorts, all led to the family becoming extremely wealthy. Sadly, those successes caused Jean's son Patrick to feel as though he was living in his father's shadow. And in 1990, at age 21, he encountered the Solar Temple. Young, impressionable, and eager to distinguish himself from his father, Patrick chose an avenue that wasn't already spoken for, spiritual enlightenment. His mother, Idzit, proved equally receptive. With her children now grown and out of the nest, along with her husband frequently occupied by business interests, Idzit found herself drawn to Joe's sidekick, the charismatic homeopath, Luc Juret. Luc earned her trust with dietary advice and ecological information before inviting her to the Solar Temple Conferences. Once she fell under Luc's spell, Idzit's behavior and personality changed dramatically. She began rinsing lettuce precisely seven times before eating it, washing dishes and doorknobs with alcohol, and reading people's energies before agreeing to shake hands. It wasn't until 1994, after the ritual suicides, when the Varney family would learn the full extent of Edith and Patrick's involvement with the Solar Temple. It happened after Patrick's name surfaced in a police dossier related to the 53 deaths. It turned out that Patrick had been the one who'd mailed the letters to journalists and officials the day after the suicides, acting on orders from Joe himself. After this revelation, the Varney family held a meeting, which is when Edith claimed to feel remorse and said she no longer had anything to do with the temple. Patrick, on the other hand, decided to cut himself off from the rest of the family. He had no intention of leaving the Solar Temple. Two days before Christmas 1995, about a year later, the Varney family would learn what happened to Patrick after that meeting. Police in southern France went to a forest clearing on top of a hill. And there, surrounding a campfire, were bodies of 13 adults and three children. Just like in Switzerland, the bodies were found badly burnt, arranged in a starburst pattern with their feet pointing inward. Among the dead were Patrick and Idzit, as well as a nurse, a homeopathic doctor, two architects, and two French policemen. As it turned out, the two policemen had both been questioned regarding the 1994 deaths, but somehow managed to hang on to their jobs despite confessing their affiliation with the Solar Temple. The investigating magistrate who handled the case concluded the two officers had dosed the rest of the group with sedatives before shooting them in the head and setting them ablaze. They then shot themselves so they'd fall into the flames. Michel Tabachnik, an orchestra conductor and the suspected third-in-command with the Solar Temple, was eventually charged with inciting the second round of murder-suicides. But Michel was acquitted, with promises being made to investigate how Temple members managed to infiltrate the police force. But the tragedy still wasn't over. In 1997, on the spring equinox, a final five bodies would be discovered, arranged in the shape of a cross in a house in Saint-Casimir, Quebec. 
The home's owner was one of the temple's spokesmen. His three teenage children were found drugged, but alive, in a shed outside. According to them, after the first suicide attempt failed, while attempting to use propane tanks, they managed to negotiate the right to live. Their parents, however, chose a different path, leaving their three kids, aged 13, 14, and 16, alive to fend for themselves. The final known death toll in connection with the Solar Temple sits at 74. And although the deadly cycle appeared to have run its course, none of the legal proceedings offered any real explanations or closures to the family of the deceased. Among the Solar Temple's worldly assets left behind were bank accounts flush with donations from wealthy members, deeds to several properties around the globe, along with a garage full of Ferraris and Lamborghinis. On the surface, it's hard to understand how ordinary, intelligent people could ever give men like Joe DeMambro or Luke Jure the time of day. But the promise of the Solar Temple spoke to hundreds of well-meaning people, so it's much too simple to say they were all just brainwashed. To get a better handle on what exactly motivates ordinary people to join an organization like the Solar Temple and stick around when the going gets weird, we reached out to Mike Kropveld, the founder of InfoCult. Mike is an author, expert witness on cult-related court cases, and a member of the board of directors for the International Cultic Studies Association. He was in Quebec when the Solar Temple transits happened and remembers dealing with members, as well as the media, before and after the events of 1994. To be honest, we had very little information about the group. This was a group that recruited people differently than others, which is that you got involved with them, but they were the ones that selected individuals to move towards different inner circles of the organization. So there was a lot of, let's say, secrecy and information that would be revealed only when they thought you were ready to move into the next circle. So that was different. Finding out more information would require people leaving the group from the inner circle. I guess I would also underline that by saying a lot of the members also were not aware of what was going on. I recall that the media went to the farm after the story broke about the Moran Heights, you know, kind of deaths and suicides, that people at the farm were stunned. They were not aware of it. And I think that underlines the fact that, you know, you had a group where people were being selected and there was really no knowledge of what was actually going on. In essence, the leadership within the Solar Temple was watching its members like a hawk, waiting for the exact right moment when a member was ready to accept anything they were told to bring that person further into their inner circles. But what was it that was so powerful about their belief system that enticed so many previously normal people to cast aside their own common sense? Mike Kropveld sees it a different way. It wasn't so much that the Solar Temple had a particularly unique belief system, but rather it was the way the system was implemented that made it so effective. The belief system is interesting. Yes, you want to know the beliefs, but you want to understand the, the trajectory of individuals getting involved and why they get involved. And this is where I think it becomes difficult for sometimes people to understand. They don't join because they make an intellectual decision to join the end result of what you see. They join because it appeals to them at an emotional level, not an intellectual level. 
looking for something in their life or going through a difficult period in terms of stress, anxiety, even just maybe moving to a new location and feeling very alone and isolated. You've been cut adrift. You're like a boat and the anchor's been kind of floating in the ocean. It's not grabbing onto anything at, on the bottom. And all of a sudden it latches onto something and it's almost just like you find this kind of group or organization and usually by chance. You've worked hard for what you have, your money, your assets, your 401k and home. Isn't it all worth protecting? Nearly one in four consumers have been a victim of identity theft. LifeLock Ultimate Plus helps protect your finances with up to $3 million in reimbursement. LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss. And if your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save 25% off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at LifeLock.com aware. Terms apply. Like many successful cults throughout history, the Solar Temple was able to take advantage of having charismatic and credentialed personalities as the face of the organization. If I was hyped as one of the smartest people in the world, someone who's an author of 45 books, has spoken internationally among, you know, different organizations, and now I come up and speak in front of you and I talk about the intricacy of the bipolar atomization that occurs in individual development down the channel of life, you know, I basically said absolutely nothing. However, the fact that I have been presented possibly as someone that's the most articulate, intelligent person around, it ends up getting you to focus even more on something and to lose contact with one's own self. And one would say almost a gut feeling that makes you sit there and say, something wrong, but I don't know how to put my finger on it. But you end up suppressing those kind of doubts and guilts because what you're looking for is almost the dream that is being presented to you that you could have. One of the most pressing questions regarding suicide cults like the Solar Temple is, if these charlatans in charge of the cults knew they're just selling snake oil to their followers, why is it so many of them end up drinking their own Kool-Aid, literally and figuratively? In most cases that I come across, I would say the leaders believe what they're selling. The interesting dimension also that I look at is they may not have believed it when they started, but now all of a sudden I've got all these people believing what I have to say. And not only that, they're willing to pay for it. They're willing to turn over things. They're willing to basically almost do anything I ask them. So now I started off, you know, basically not believing it, but gee, maybe it is true. Because why else are all these people uh, kind of buying into it? At the end of the day, many cult followers like Thierry Huguenot do finally decide to get out. But from an outsider's perspective, it always seems like this should be an obvious decision. Just what is it about being in a cult that makes it so difficult to leave? Ability for people to continue to believe after in the front of one would say almost a mountain of information which contradicts is I don't think a really surprise. Question is, is what does it cost you to leave? What does it cost you psychologically, emotionally, and also in terms of relationships to leave what you believe in? And the question then is, how much has the individual invested in the organization? Where are they going back to? The actions of the Solar Temple members can never be excused or perhaps even truly understood. The crimes they committed and the warning signs they ignored mean their choices will always seem foreign and their actions unforgivable. Maybe there's one way for the story of the Solar Temple to make any kind of sense as a tragic reminder of how far people will go 
in the name of belief, or perhaps the need to belong to something greater than themselves. So what do we do if we see someone we love dipping their toes into an organization we don't understand? One we fear might be leading them on a journey into darkness. With anything in this kind of an area, if you're looking for information, you're looking to understand, get it from diverse sources. I say that in terms of like taking the time for people to check things out, recognizing at the same time that when people go through dramatic periods in their life, they're not necessarily going to be very open to taking the time to check it out. They want instant resolution. They were looking for the magical solution. Take your time. Because if they're really that wonderful and good, they should be able to respond to your questions and also stand the test of time, which is like looking at their history, looking at the movement and seeing what's been written about them as well and talking to different people. But I think that's an important thing that people sometimes forget. There's a lot going on in different areas related to this phenomena. So it's still there and recognizing we're going through a very difficult period in our society where there is a lack of trust in established structures and orders, which are gonna lead a lot of people to looking for alternatives. Hopefully they'll find alternatives that are positive. The reality is, is like there's also alternatives which are gonna be negative and problematic and harm people. So knowing that this story happened so close to my house, I guess I'm really curious to know if I know anyone who knew any of these people or who are still involved. And when I lived in L.A., I loved finding, you know, certain parts of the city that things happened in. And now that I know that this happened in Morn Heights, I'm kind of curious the next time in the area to just try to find out where this house was and and go and snoop because I'm I'm that kind of weirdo. <laughs> I want to give a huge thank you to Sarah Booth for agreeing to be on the show with us and for also being an awesome co-host. I'd also like to thank Mike Kropveld, the founder and executive director of the organization InfoCult, for taking the time to provide his insight on this case. If you'd like to learn more about their work, we've got links in the episode notes. Follow The Minds of Madness on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. To support the show and get access to ad-free episodes, extra content, and Patreon-exclusive episodes, go to patreon.com slash madnesspod. To find us on Instagram and Facebook, search The Minds of Madness, and on Twitter using the handle at madnesspod. And also, by checking out our sponsors and using our promo codes, you're also helping support the show. We've got all the links in our episode notes. So until next week, thanks for listening. <laughs>